0: And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is uh, Old Testament time. We're going to look at a very unusual person in the Old Testament with Dr. Rebecca Ree. I'm looking forward to that. Peter, this is going to be an interesting hour.
1: It, it is, Bill. I, I mean, it feels like same song, second verse, broken record. You, you, you picked the analogy, but this is yet another passage of Scripture. I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Yeah. Absolutely nothing.
0: I always expect you to be more helpful, but um, <laughs> fortu- fortunately, uh, Rebecca's uh, on, the, um, on it today, and we're going to talk about the Shunammite woman, and that's going to be uh, fascinating. I don't know how we're going to fill an hour with it, but I can't wait.
1: <laughs> well, I, just just even the idea of this little boy that uh, ends up sneezing seven times and opening up his eyes, I can't even wait to hear what the explanation of that part of the passage yeah, is. Yeah, I
0: know. Rebecca is a regular guest on my afternoon show, and I'm so glad that she is up to uh, discussing an Old Testament person. She's kind of a, a Hebrew scholar, so this is going to make it very interesting. She went to Yale, where she was—I uh, don't know if I've ever introduced uh, Rebecca correctly, but I'm going to try to walk through it this time—at a- Yale, uh, she studied— um, Uh, world literature and she had original plans to go to medical school, but then she got uh, such a love of scripture and literature that she went to Yale Divinity School and then she went on to Boston University and she earned her PhD in religion and literature. So uh, she's got quite a resume and always a delight. She has this incredible knack of almost in a Seinfeld-esque sort of way, notice things and then uh, write about them and then apply uh, scripture to it. It's, It's fascinating. So I always love having her on, and I'm excited that we're going to have a full hour with her today talking about the Shunammite woman. Rebecca, welcome.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Did I finally do your introduction justice today?
2: It was perfect. You gave me me a beautiful liberal arts introduction.
0: Nice. Well, um, you've you've really teased us with this uh, study today. We've been looking forward to this for a long time.
2: Yeah, well, everybody was choosing people that are um, known, like Moses and David. And um, I, of course, I've got some you know big names that I really love, like Jacob and Joseph. Um, I did my dissertation on Joseph, in fact. But I wanted to pick somebody that is kind of obscure and um, who's worse um, in, the, in the Bible. And her, her place there um, has a, an absolute richness to it and, and great for... Uh, instruction, specifically instruction to us in the 21st century. So I wanted to bring her forward because although she's anonymous, she has a lot to give us.
0: Oh, fantastic. So is it best that we set the stage by just reading the passage?
2: Yes. Okay, let's do that. um, Her story comes from Two Kings 4, and um, what I want you to listen for as I'm reading, I'm reading an abridged uh, an abridged version of her story. So we can fit it into this interview. Um, I, w- I chose her because her patterns of direct speech and by direct speech, I'm just so th- to clarify for the listeners is the speech that happens between quotation marks, you know, um, direct speech. I find her speech absolutely fascinating in its cause and it's an, and it's in its effect. And I actually went to the Hebrew scripture and I counted out all of her words. Versus all of um, Elisha's words as the prophet. He's the other main character in this story. And she has 82 words and he has 95. So the storyteller has really given her lots of room to talk in this story so that we get to know her. She's kind of on par with the prophet. So ultimately, her speech is kind of like what you would think of as a divining rod. It shows where the power of God lies and how to tap into it. So that gives me some idea as to how I'd like to do the same with my direct speech. So that's, that's how I want to set up the story. I want you to listen every time she talks very carefully. Okay. Okay. So um, we're in two Kings four and here we go. One day Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. And she said to her husband, I know that this is a holy man of God. Let us make a small room on the roof and put there a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes, he can go up there. One day, Elisha came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king? Or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Jehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. Elisha said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And Elisha said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about the time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And his father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to his servant, run to meet her and say to her, is all well with you, with your husband, with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So Elisha arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child but there was no sound or sign of life. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house, Stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shinamite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Powerful, powerful wow. story. Wow.
1: Yeah. Yes. Rebecca, as you're reading through that story, yeah, I would love for you to get into this because as you're reading it, I sat here and thought, these details are too obscure. They they have to be meaningful on some level, and I'm guessing we have to somehow get into the Hebrew mind a little bit because I'm guessing it's quite a bit different than the way I'm processing this story as you read it. Well,
2: you know, one is so we're definitely going to focus on through the lens of direct speech. That's my way into the story, and. I, would ha- I had a professor once say to me, it was actually the, the woman who taught me the Hebrew language. She said, You would be hard pressed to find another culture, another uh, people that reveres the power of the spoken word more than the Hebrews. Um, I mean, if you open the Bible, what does it open upon? A creative, an act of creation based on the power of speech. Let there be light, right? So um, I want to kind of approach this. Uh, story with that kind of humility and reverence, understanding um, that the speech, there's never frivolous speech in the Bible. There's never um, speech that doesn't account or doesn't have any meaning or weight. So I want to go through her speech um, specifically. I'm more than the man of God. Usually it's the prophet that gets all the limelight, but I really want to focus on her because again, she taps into the power of God and we want to we wanna learn how to do uh, what she does. So um, there are three aspects I want to highlight about the Shunammite speech. And by the way, she, she doesn't have a name. She's not named in the story. Shunammite is basically, um, it, her, she comes from Shunem, and in the Hebrew, it would be Shunammite. So she is known as the Shunammite. Um, but, you know, she's known for her, her speech, not for her, um, whatever her family name is. So what do I, the first aspect I want to focus on is the Shunammite speech is wise, Now, what do I mean by wise? Because in the Hebrew Bible, wisdom means more than just being smart. Um, It means at least two things. And the first thing I want to focus on is that wisdom is a creative force. And I just referred to Genesis 1 when God says, let there be light. But there's a verse in Proverbs that says, by wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations; By understanding, he set the heavens in place. So when in Genesis 1 we hear God saying, let there be light, let there be dry land, let there be this, let there be that, that is all wisdom speech. Um, it's just uh, a, an inherent quality of, uh, of wisdom that it, it creates. Um, and then the way this um, – that idea of w- wisdom being a creative force um, – was actually played out when um, Israel was wandering in the desert and they had to make a tabernacle for their worship. And there there was a, an individual, his name is Betzalel, and it it literally means in the shadow of God, which I think is such a cool name to have. And in Exodus, God says about Betzalel, he says, I have filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding and knowledge and all kinds of skills. And if you go on to read Betzalel's story, He becomes this expert craftsman, and he um, makes more things in different disciplines than any one human being in one lifespan would possibly be able to master. I mean, he does metalwork, gemstones, wood, cloth, you name it, this guy can make it, and it's because wisdom is a creative force. So the Shinamite's speech is wise and specifically it's wise in a creative way. Um, and then I wanted to bring in a statement by a Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter, who says, whenever characters in the Bible in, in narrative, when they speak, always pay attention to the first words out of a character's mouth, because they're often emblematic of what that person is going to be or do in the story. So first words are always um always give, it, give us a good impression of who that person's going to be. And the Shunammite's first words to her husband are, I know this is the holy man of God. Let us make a small room and put there a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. So in a very real sense, the Shunammite is imitating God when she basically says, let there be this special room for Elisha. And it gets done. It's like it happens, just like with God. He says, let there be, and it happens. And then she's like Betzalel in that her commands are, like, totally comprehensive. There's a broadness to them. You know, Elisha gets the full works. He's not getting, like, this cheap motel to stand. He's getting, (laughs) like, you know, the the master suite. She thinks of everything he could possibly need, and he gets it. So her words are creative and comprehensive. Um, and that's what makes them wise. So um, do you want to jump in there before I go well, on to my little second teacher? No,
0: what I want to do is take our first break. Uh, I know Peter, oh, okay. uh, Peter and I are extremely drawn in uh, right now, and we don't want to stop at all. But we do have to take a short break. <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Rhea is our guest as we continue our Old Testament series. We're talking today about the Shunammite woman, and we'll be right back. With Dr. Rebecca Ree as we continue our study of people from the Old Testament. Today we're talking about the Shunammite woman who does not have a name, but we just call her the Shunammite woman. Rebecca, you're doing an amazing job so far. Thank you so much for being on the program today.
2: Oh, it's again my pleasure to be here and to highlight someone who really deserves some attention.
0: Exactly. All right, so let's pick up. I think we're still talking about wisdom, aren't we?
2: Yep, and there's just one more thing I wanted to say before moving on to another aspect of her direct speech. And that is this, that we were talking about wisdom being an attitude of heart, and um, that the opposite of wisdom in the Bible isn't stupidity, it's arrogance. And there's a proverb that says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So I looked over again, all of her speech in the story. And over the course of the story, the Shunammite gives no less than eight commands and all of them are addressed to men, her husband, Elisha, various servants. And when I examine those commands closely, I notice that she always, always observes proper etiquette, making sure that when she's speaking to a superior, she uses the correct honorifics that come out in the Hebrew and, um, all those good manners tell me that though the Shunammite is very well positioned, she is not egotistical, self-important, or arrogant. And these are unfortunate qualities that often appear in powerful people when you think about like a king Nebuchadnezzar or the pharaoh in Exodus. So instead, the Shunammite is gracious and humble in her speech and in her heart. So that's another aspect of her, being, her speech being wise. It's both creative. In, in, its, uh, in its force, but it is also restrained and, um, and gracious in terms of its attitude of heart. So that's what makes her speech-wise.
0: Yeah. So what's not to like about her so far, huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: so the, ne- the, ne- the next thing I wanted to highlight about her is, so there's, there's three things I want to say. Here's the second one. That is her speech is well-stewarded. And, you know, what do I mean by well-stewarded? And what I mean by that is she speaks no more and no less than what is needed in the moment. And in the story three times, we hear her modulate her speech perfectly according to the occasion. Don't you wish you could say that? I modulated my speech perfectly at that party or at that (laughs) meeting.
1: Nobody's Uh, ever accused us of that, Bill, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
2: the first and most dramatic example of her stewarding her words is immediately after her son dies. Right. And it's really excruciating the form that he dies. I mean, literally dies in pain on her lap and she's completely helpless to stop it. And most parents at that part, at that point would just fall apart right there and then, but not this woman. She puts her dead son on Elisha's bed, closes the door, and then starts making preparations. And notably, she doesn't speak a single word to her husband that their son is dead. When he asked her, like, why are you going to see Elisha, right? She only says one word in the Hebrew, which is shalom, which I think, you know, most of your listeners will know, if anything, that the, the, the basic de- definition of that is peace, or basically, it's okay. Um, all is well, it's okay. And then later on when she approaches Elisha and the, his Elisha's servant Gehazi runs out to meet her and ask those questions, is it okay with your husband? Or, you know, Is everything okay at home? She's like, shalom again. Hmm. Now, um, strictly speaking, things are f- as far from okay as they could possibly be. So why is the Shinamite only saying shalom, shalom? I mean, is, has she lost her grip? Is she lying for some unknown reason? And my theory is that she is saving her words exclusively for the one that can do something about her dilemma. And she knows that her husband isn't that person. And in, in my, in, in my reading of the story, her husband isn't even the real originator of the boy. Elisha the prophet is the one that spoke the word that made her conceive. So like he's the real metaphorical originator of that boy, not the biological father. And the same goes for Gehazi. She's not wasting any breath on him either because he's not the wielder of divine power. When she finally catches up to Elisha, the true originator who spoke her son into being, that's when she lets it rip. Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Now, I'm amazed at those two questions first because they lay the responsibility for the son's death squarely. At Elisha's feet. And he can't squirm out of those accusations because they're 100% true. He never, she never did ask for a son and he never, like, asked for permission to speak it into her. He just did it. He asked his servant, What can I do for her? She said, and the the servant said, Give her a son. And so he spoke it. Um, So she did warn the prophet not to toy with her. And now this horrible, horrible thing has happened. Um, And the other thing that tells me that she's like really modulating her speech is that even in the midst of her extraordinary grief, she is still exercising extreme constraint. She does not utter a single inappropriate, impolite word to Elisha. She's still using those proper honorifics, talking to him, saying "My Lord, My Lord." So. You know, she goes from all of those one-word shaloms to constrained but powerful rhetoric. And then there's one last modulation that the Shunammite makes in her speech. After her son is resurrected and Elisha gives him back, and he says, pick up your son, she then responds with complete silence. She just falls at the prophet's speech and bears her son away because she knows that the time for verbal tactics— is over she has wrestled with her angel and prevailed and so she just physically shows her gratitude and goes so her speech is well stewarded because it's always fit for the occasion in terms of its volume and its character so that's that's aspect number two
1: wise and well stewarded
0: yeah a stewarded and modulated speech peter how are you feeling about that
1: Well, yeah, I'm I'm literally looking up tips on voice modulation (laughs) when public speaking right now. It's so intriguing, Rebecca, that you're teasing this out of the biblical text, but you said at at the top of this hour, right, that the Hebrews were incredibly intentional. Sometimes I fear, I look back at these stories and think, wow, I I mean, it seems like they're just kind of almost backwards in telling the story. These, These details aren't that important. Why don't they get to the point? But you're teasing out some stuff about just the intentionality and depth that's in the story.
2: Yes. There's never a wasted word in the Hebrew. Never. Not when the narrator's speaking and not when the, when the people themselves are speaking as characters. So would you like to hear the third thing?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, I think we're coming up against a hard break here. Uh, We just have about a minute, so I don't want to get, I don't want to get you started uh, quite yet, but we'll, uh, we'll start after the break. And, In the meantime, I want to let listeners know if you just tuned in, oh my, you have to go to the beginning of this podcast. Go to myfaithradio.com. You can check out the Afternoons with Bill show page, and you're going to want to hear uh, this right from the very beginning. You're a podcast listener. Thank you so much for uh, tuning into the podcast. We're always thrilled when you join the show. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Rebecca Ree in just a minute.
1: It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Pride time, drive time, let's get
0: it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I'm realizing I knew next to nothing about the Shunammite woman, but I'm learning a lot today from Dr. Rebecca Ree. She is our guest. Uh, Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to be talking to her as part of our Old Testament series and she is a Hebrew scholar and loves to to interpret the narrative. And she's doing a fantastic job. Rebecca, uh, I think we're at the place now. We're going to look at part three or
2: yeah.
0: of this story, which you are telling so beautifully.
2: So the Shinamite speech is wise and the Shunammite speech is well stewarded. And the third thing I want to say is the Shunammite speech is wrenching. And, what I mean by that is as self-controlled as this woman is on the outside, if you read the story closely, we hear some slips that reveal that there's a storm inside of her. She is experiencing some gut-wrenching pain, which she, ex- she decides to share exclusively with the man of God. Um, and the first time we hear a slip is when Elisha declares that she's going to have a baby, and she responds defensively. Um, with a maneuver bred from, you know, years of barrenness. She says, no, my Lord, do not lie to your servant. Um, And interestingly, I was looking at where she's standing when she says those words, do not lie to me. She's literally standing in the doorway of Elisha's upper room when this annunciation, birth annunciation takes place. So symbolically, she's standing in this like womb-like spot between worlds. It's like an opening where a huge transition in her life is set into motion. And I think she gets that on some level. You know, she isn't sure she'll survive if that transition goes south. So she wants to let the man of God know that her suffering has been so significant that, you know, even a man of God or maybe especially a man of God should tread very carefully in her heart. Um, and maybe that's something we should consider, too, when we speak into people's lives in, a, in an area of long-term suffering for them to tread carefully. Um, later on, when she insists that Elisha himself must go and see her dead son, she lets her guard down again. She, she's, um, she throws herself at his feet and says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And and, and in other words, she's saying, I'm in so much agony right now that I'm going to stop at nothing to get you to act. I'm invoking God and you both to receive justice for my dead son. Um, And I find her gut-wrenching confessions so beautiful, maybe because, you know, for all her good breeding and influence in the world, she's still just a human being like you and me. She's subject to pain and suffering that ambush her, that she can't defend against. And when crisis comes, she faces the same choices that we do, whether we're going to invite others into our anguish or stay locked up alone in our high tower. Um, And in a very real sense, and I I mean this most powerfully, is that um, the beginning and the end of her son's life are punctuated by these gut-wrenching statements from her mom from his mom. And that's no accident. I mean, this story is suggesting that confessions from the heart are what move mountains in our lives. Mm. So I want to say that again. Confessions from the heart are what move mountains in our lives. They cause new life to be born, and they bring back life after experiencing death. Mm. So without pulling back the curtains on her pain, the Shunammite woman never would have succeeded in her desperate quest. And maybe the same goes for us in some critical area where we've been struck down and are laying alone and dead in a dark room, that there's some confession that's needed um, in that. So along those lines, how do we get more wise, well-stewarded, and wrenching speech worked into our lives? That's my question. Because whenever I read one of these narratives, I want to say, okay, so how do I let it you know, um, be absorbed into my being and and affect the way that I interact with the world and with God. And so the first thing, the first aspect, the wise speech, you know, the one marked by its creative power and its humble, gracious demeanor. Um, In my own life, where I need this most is in raising my special needs son. So he's autistic. He's nine years old. He's mostly nonverbal. And interacting with him can be quite a challenge. And I don't always understand what he's trying to say to me. And frequently he's acting in ways that are disruptive or um, they, you know, trying on the nerves and um, difficult. And one valuable lesson I have learned raising an autistic child is no matter how well you think you know someone, no matter how deeply you love them, that does not mean you will always know how or even whether to speak to them in any given moment. Um, And I think that's a lesson that would be well applied to a lot of people in your life, whether they have special needs or not. Um, I believe that most of us would like to jump in and always say those let there be, you know, let there be peace, let there be provision, let there be freedom and strength for you. Um, But we need to be get into the habit of asking for wise speech and not just assuming that we know what to say. In a given moment, Um, as the book of James promises us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously and without reproach. Um, And then later on, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. So what would happen if every morning when we got up, we just put our feet on the floor and said, Lord, let my words flow with creativity and grace. And wit- like, let us have that kind of wisdom as your words do. So that's my first, how do we apply this?
0: Okay, that is outstanding. And I feel like you're speaking directly to me because this is something I'm going to do more uh, purposefully each day because w- words are what Peter and I do on the radio. That's that's what we mm-hmm. have.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And wisdom is what I I pray for all the time.
2: And It's just interesting to parse out wisdom as that sort of creative and um, gracious speech. Um, I think I, I, that's new to me too to to think about it that way. Yeah So then um, the second quality, the well- stewarded speech, how do we how do we get more well- stewarded speech into our lives? And here I have a personal confession to make, which is when I err in my speech, it's most always by saying too much, not too little. And I'm not just talking about the volume of words that I speak, but like maybe sometimes how many people I'm addressing them to when there's a problem. Like I'm talking too much to too many people. Um, And that makes me think about the Shunammite and her shalom's after the death of her boy, how she was very measured in her speech. She reserved her words for the right person at the right time. Some people got shalom's, and some people got, you know, did I ask you for a son? Um, And even then, when she was you know, ripping into Elisha, Elijah, Elijah, um, her statements were minimal and measured. Um, so often when we think we can control a situation by speaking into it, um, it may not even be the time and it may not even be our place to do so. Just like um, Ecclesiastes says, there is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Um, and Proverbs tells us where words are many, Sin is not absent. So I think the Shinamite's constraint made her words all the more powerful when she did finally speak up, and her son's welfare was absolutely dependent on that um, power. And my question to us, you know, me and to the listeners and you guys is, whose welfare in your life may be dependent on how well you're stewarding your words?
1: It's such an interesting question, Rebecca, because I'm I'm tying into your first point about growing in wisdom with humility. And and I would think that to to just simply be economical with your words isn't necessarily wise, but when you when you tie the wisdom together with an economy of words where you don't feel like you need to to speak into every situation. I don't know. I know those people. I'm just thinking of those people that they didn't speak a lot, but when they spoke, it was almost as like time itself stopped for a half a second. And, and mm-hmm. all of the attention, understandably so, was turned towards the strength that was in those words.
2: Yes. Yes. I have hmm. to say, I'm married to, I'm married to one of those people. My husband is a, a soft-spoken person, but when he does speak, it's usually pretty powerful. Um, hmm. And you, you know, Job's friends. The best thing they ever did for their Job when he was suffering was just sit with him seven days and not say anything initially.
1: And what was so. the proverb that you quoted? It was, it was the many words. Uh, say that again, because I haven't oh, heard that proverb yeah. before. Now I'm, now I'm terribly self-conscious, even having too many <laughs> words asking the question. <laughs>
2: so it's Proverbs ten nineteen, When words hmm. are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise.
0: Hmm. Yep. I'm holding my tongue right now. <laughs>
1: I was going to say, no, I'm not saying anything any further. I'm trying
0: to be wise right now.
2: <laughs> well, okay, so would you like to hear the third one? So yes. how do we get more wrenching, yes. like the wrenching speech into you our lives? Um, so there's a little detail in the story that tells us the Shinamite was absolutely right in reserving her gut-wrenching speech for Elisha. And that is when she finally gets to him and she throws herself down and takes hold of his feet. Gehazi basically tries to push her away. Like he's offended, like get off of him, right? But Elisha says, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Now, my immediate question was, why would God hide the Shunammites reason reason for distress from his prophet? You know, why would he hide that information? And I think it's because God knows that sometimes What needs to happen in a crisis is for the person at the center of the crisis to make a confession, to pour out their hearts and share how a situation seems to them because our perceptions and our feelings really do matter to God. And he knows that unless he addresses them, there's not going to really be a true resolution to our problem. So um, in the Shinamite's eyes, Elisha bears full responsibility for the child he spoke into being, and she allows all of her pain to drive her to the only source that can help her, and that source is waiting to take that pain and give a a miracle back in return. Um, And I'm thinking about your listeners out there. Maybe you're someone who doesn't naturally show their emotions. Maybe the more desperate your emotions are, the deeper you bury them. Um, maybe you're somebody who simply says, well, God already knows what the matter is. You know, he'll either answer or he won't. Um, this story shows that God may be waiting on you to make your move, to choose just the right person to tell your story to so that the miracle can happen. Um, even Jesus did this in the, the Garden of Gethsemane when He was in great distress. So, who are we to think that we don't need to unload our words um, appropriately as well?
0: This is giving us a whole lot to think about. And when I think I'm, I when I start thinking this hard, I get real, qu- <laughs> I get real quiet, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to have happen when you host a radio show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. Well, so so, wise speech, well-stewarded speech, and wrenching speech. This is why I love the Shunamite woman so much. Not because she challenges; she not only challenges me to think how I can improve how I speak to other people, but she challenges me to really think about my prayer life. Um, I feel more encouraged to be respectful but very real with God. And more expectant of his miracles when I come to him, throw myself at his feet and lay my lay the responsibility for my welfare, you know, at his feet. I, I believe ultimately the story is saying God likes it when his children do that and that he is, his hands are loosed to do some dramatic changes and some dramatic intervention in our lives um, as a result when we um, – when we model our speech after the Shinomites.
0: All right, let me take a little short break. Our guest is Dr. Rebecca Ree. You can head over to her uh, website, which is rebeccaree.net. She spells her last name R H E E. So, Rebecca, R E B E C C A R H E E.net. You can sign up for her blog. It's all free. We'd be delighted to get it. Um, It's all available right there at RebeccaRee.net. We'll take a short break and be right back. With Dr. Rebecca Ree, Peter Capson, and I are continuing our series of people from the Old Testament, and today we've been talking about the Shunammite woman. I didn't think we would uh, have so much to learn about the Shunammite woman. She doesn't have a name other than the Shunammite woman, uh, but her her faith has led to an amazing series of events. Um, and our guest uh, has been is Rebecca Ree, and she's been telling this beautiful story with a lot of practical application. For me, and I hope uh, for you as well. So, when the boy comes to life, he has seven sneezes before he finally comes to. I don't know if seven sneezes means anything, but um, it is kind of an interesting number.
2: Um, in the Hebrew Bibles, from what I understand, um, you know, different cultures, especially ancient cultures, counted things different ways. We, you know, here we in the Western twenty-first century, we think, you know, there's only one way to count: one, two, three, right? But I would say the Bible probably counts one, three, five, seven, forty.
1: <laughs> so, um,
2: it probably means, uh, you know, the, chi- the, the child, when the child sneezed, it was undeniable, you know, a good round number. He, he, he did it definitively. He was revived. Um, that's what I would say. The, the seven sneezes meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's uh, interesting. So let's just recap before we move forward. Um, So her words were wise. They were, um, um, retching, retching and and well stewarded. Well stewarded. Yeah. I can't read my own handwriting. (laughs) I'm looking at my handwriting going, (laughs) Bill, what is that word you just wrote? Uh, but it's stewarded. And I think uh, Rebecca, we've all learned a lot. I remember you telling a a story uh, years ago when you were on the show about you feeling kind of wretched and wretching your emotions to a group of people that produced an amazing story. I don't know if you'd be willing to share it.
2: I I would, and I think by sharing the story, it illustrates how when we make these important confessions, when we do decide to exercise our divine image of um, using our spoken words in powerful ways, um, it doesn't just come out in one form. Um, it's just like when we think about worship, worship isn't just going and singing a song. Worship can also be a prayer. Worship can also be silence. Worship can be a lot of things. It comes out in a lot of different ways. And I think our gut-wrenching confessions, um, it applies, that that same principle applies. They come out in different ways and it becomes a rich tapestry to which God then can weave his grace. Um, So, I woke up one morning, this was during a time in my life when I was prim- I was living in Connecticut, but I was primary caregiver to my grandparents who were living in Long Island. So this meant I was driving back and forth, um, taking them to medical appointments and dealing with their house and their needs. And um, it was quite, quite uh, exhausting, both um, physically and mentally. And of course, during this time when they were declining in health, it was also very, um, I was concerned about them. And at the time, I was also leading um, a Bible study for students at Yale, and um, it it took place at night. I think it was about like 7 o'clock at night or something. So sometimes uh, the appointments my grandparents had, I had to take them there during the day and then wind up back in Connecticut, back at Yale for for an evening Bible study that I would lead. So it was a very, very long day, and these Bible studies could go kind of late into the night. So I remember waking up one morning when I had this full day ahead of me that was going to include both Long Island and, um, you know, the Bible study. And I just, I just made one of those gut-wrenching confessions to God. And so it came out in this form. That, that was like gut-wrenching confession number one in my prayer closet. I just said, Lord, I am so tired. I'm just so tired. And I had read that story of Moses's hands being held up during battle so that when they, um, by his uh, two friends, so that when his hands were held up, the battle, the Israelites were winning the battle so that they wouldn't fall and the Israelites would lose the battle. So I just said, Lord, I am so, so tired today. Could you just hold up my arms? And I left it at that. I didn't even really give it a second thought after I said those words, and I jumped into my day. And then later on um, that evening during the prayer uh, the prayer meeting and the prayer, the, the Bible study group, um, we would end, we would study our passage. And then at the end, we would pray for one another for whatever needs came up in the group. And I think I must've been sharing with them all along. Um, and this is another form of confession, you know, the continual narration of the issues that are going on in your life and being open with others, with a, a trusted circle of others of what's, you know, what are the ongoing issues in, in your life? And so I, I, you know, told them again, I just got back from New York, blah, blah, blah. And so they said, well, let us pray for you. And they they sort of made a circle around me and put their, lay their hands on me. And just before we started to pray, one of them said, you know, I'm taking this class on African dance, or it was like African culture or something. And he said, and in African culture, they told, they told us today that to um, honor their teachers, they had their teachers sit down, and then the students come and hold up their arms. <laughs> wow! And I was just dumbfounded, and they were so appreciative of you know my commitment to come and teach, even though I was tired. And so I sat, and they held up my arms, and they prayed for me. And I don't even know if I even heard a word that they said because <laughs> what they were doing was so powerful. So that's just to exemplify, you know, that, again, I, you know, that, that, that this, these kind of confessions that we make, they're, they unleash God's power um, and it, they can unleash God's power in a very, not just power, you know, not just in a way that like bowls, bowls us over, but in a very intimate way that reverberates with us emotionally, spiritually for a long time, as, as this story obviously has for me.
0: it's a powerful story, Rebecca, and when you tell this story, I'm reminded how important it is for us to be sharing with each other at a level where we can carry each other's burdens, encourage one another, and lift each other up.
2: Yes, that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm.
0: But if we hold things way too close to the vest and, and never— uh, share details or keep everything uh, quiet. You're going to suffer. Right.
2: Well, and we have to remember that Jesus's prayer book was the Book of Psalms, and certainly he grew up listening to the Psalms of lament and the Psalms of rejoicing and the Psalms of complaint. Um, and so that was his model. And if we, if the Son of God needed that model, and if the Son of God needed that outlet and um, that way of living and all it, you know, those confessions and all the very many forms. Again, what makes us think that we being made informed in his image don't <laughs> just doesn't work that way.
1: Rebecca, this story of Elisha is, it seems to be happening as I'm reading the context around it too, in a series of events that would be pretty unfamiliar to someone like me walking out, a faith journey. There, There's things happening, including this young boy being raised from the dead, of course, right, that are right. Just, just unfamiliar to me. But for them in this story, I, I don't know that it's commonplace necessarily, but um, can you speak to just even how they understood the world that they would even be having this conversation and these possibilities and and what Elisha was up to? I'm, I'm just curious how you see the Hebrew world in light of the story.
2: Um, I think, again, it it circles back to that idea of words have power. I mean, in our age of social media and whatever, we just say whatever and we post whatever and we don't really revere what can be unleashed when you say something. And it was in the ancient Near East. And I was, um, when I was doing my dissertation on Joseph, I did a lot of research into Egypt and Egyptian, you know, dreams. And Dreams were understood to be communications, like words. You could just understand it as language as well. Um, so the ancient Near East had this profound understanding that, you know, the the world the world was created by speech, and things can be destroyed and created by speech. Destroyed humanity being much better at destroying things <laughs> through speech, mm-hmm. and not you know. So, but I think there's that, again, that profound understanding of be careful, you know, especially how you handle someone's name. Be careful exactly what you say. Be careful when you quote something. Whenever you see somebody in the Bible saying, well, didn't you say X, Y, Z? It's always really important to go back to the original story and see whether that person actually said X, Y, Z. Yeah.
0: Well, Rebecca, I have. Peter and I are just so thrilled that you were able to join us today. Thank you so much for teaching on the Shunammite Woman. I will love studying this some more, and I feel like you have uh, really done an amazing job, so thank you.
2: Uh, Well, it was my pleasure. Again, I just love her, and I want other people to love her as well. Mm.
0: Thank you so much. That wraps up our show for the day. I so appreciate you joining us tonight. And if you missed any of it, go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can check out the podcast. Have a great night, everyone. As you lay your head on that pillow tonight, know that God's working out His great plan in your life. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.